The Kaplan Community Podcast is a platform for the wider Kaplan community to share ideas and insights that can guide us on our professional and academic development. It's easy to listen to, but tackle some hard-hitting issues. And we think it's a great way to appreciate diverse perspectives on life, learning, and careers. Hi, my name is James Adonopoulos. I am the Academic Dean at Kaplan Business School and Kaplan Professional. I'm responsible for the strategic direction of our academic function. So I feel quite privileged to be in a role like this, where I can make a difference to the lives of thousands of students uh, every year. Today, to continue our series on mental health and well-being, we welcome Professor James Adenopoulos, Academic Dean of Kaplan Business School and Kaplan Professional. Thank you for joining us, James. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Richard. There's a lot we'd like to learn from you and a lot to discuss. I'd like to start off with your perspective on academic well-being. So different ideas around how someone can maintain well-being while prioritizing academic success. And yourself, as somebody who has been a successful student many times in your life, how do you think students can manage their time and work-life balance successfully? Look, it's a tough one, especially because I know that I am not a role model in this respect. So the way that I uh, work and the way that I structure my life is definitely not how I would recommend that anybody else does it because it would not be sustainable for a majority of people who, for example, may have a partner or may have uh, kids or may have other responsibilities or interests or passions that they're pursuing that are just as important, in my opinion, or even more important when it comes to family. So my advice really in regard to wellness is for academics to identify what makes them feel good. That's it. So what makes you feel good? So for some, that might mean exercise. For others, it may mean music. For others, it may mean reading. For others, it may mean, you know, television. I think conventional wisdom is that you have to exercise every day or uh, you have to do crossword puzzles every day to strengthen your mind or you have to make sure that you meditate or take time off. And I, I, I really dislike that kind of advice. I feel like it doesn't always work for everyone. So my suggestion would be find out what makes you feel good and make sure that you make time for that with enough frequency to feel as though your life has meaning, to feel as though your life has value. So if watching television is what fulfills you, then watch television, like make time to watch TV every day. You know, If what makes you feel good is to do exercise or to hang out with friends or to go for weekends away, like just identify what it is and make sure that your life is not absent of it. So that's my advice in terms of academic wellness. Um, in terms of the student factor, can you repeat that question, Kieran? Yes. So I just wanted to know, what might you recommend as you've done a lot of study in your life? So what might you recommend if you have any tips, study habits, how to manage time for a sure, student? Yeah. yeah. You know, I remember, God, it would have been maybe 15, 20 years ago. Uh, it was my first real full-time corporate job. And I had this manager who had uh, been a high school teacher. So she'd had a Bachelor of Education. Uh, she then completed her Master of Law. 
Uh, and then while she was my manager, she'd enrolled in an MBA. And I remember saying to her, why would you do that? You know, like you already have one degree. At that point, I didn't even have one. So I was a, I was a late student. It wasn't until I was in my late 20s that I even thought about going to university. So in my mind, there was just no point to it. Uh, and I asked, I asked her, like, why, like, why would you keep going back to university? And her response, I've never forgotten. And her response was, if you look at a qualification, simply in terms of what you'll get at the end of it. So if you start it and all you can really think of is finishing it, then it's going to be torture. Right? It'll, be, it'll be a horrible experience that will add very little to your life. But she says, if you instead look at higher education as what is it adding to my life today? So what impact is it having on my life? What have I learned this week or via this reading or via this lecturer or via this anything that I'm able to think about and apply in my life, in my work today? Suddenly, she says, higher education is not at all about finishing it. Higher education suddenly becomes this integrated part of one's life. And as soon as that happens, it ceases to be a burden. Like it ceases to be this obligation. It instead, it instead just becomes this, this part of your daily practice, this habit. Now, that for me was genuinely transformative. Like I can think of maybe, you know, only five or six times that I've been giving, that I've been giving advice that I have tried to always comply with, and that's been one of them. And so it's because of her that I enrolled in my first degree. You know, and it's because of her that I've continued to enrol in degree after degree because I don't see it as something that I have to complete transactionally at all. James, that leads me to the question about lifetime learning. So we've talked a bit about that. And KBS has recently made available subjects for lifetime learning for alumni. Now, my question would be, in your mind, how would alumni best make use of lifetime learning? And specifically, what does lifetime learning mean to you? Um, so what it means to me, yes, what it means to me is that it's negligence, I think, for any provider of higher education to think that a student's learning ends upon the completion of their qualification, uh, because it's not true. It's not true. Some of the greatest learning happens afterwards. Uh, and it's also, I think, negligent to assume that what a student is taught throughout a three-year qualification or a two-year qualification, whatever it is, is enough to sustain them throughout their career. It's not. And so what our, what our lifetime of learning guarantee does at Kaplan Business School is it acknowledges that there's much more that students have to learn after they graduate because we're still learning, right? We're always still learning. That's why we're always making changes to our curriculum. That's why we're always making changes to our assessments. That's why we're always making changes to our pedagogical style, right? So we're always making changes because we're always learning something new. That's what work is like. That's what life is like. And so what our lifetime learning guarantee does is it offers students, it offers alumni, two benefits that definitely don't exist elsewhere 
in Australia. So no other institute of higher, of higher education in this country offers these two benefits to alumni. But to our understanding, we don't think there's any institute of higher education globally that offers these two benefits. And we, we feel that way because at this year's Pioneer Awards, which is uh, the world's most sophisticated awards platform for international education, we're a global finalist in the progressive education delivery category, specifically for this lifetime of learning guarantee. And this lifetime of learning guarantee basically offers the two benefits. And one of those is that forever uh, alumni are able to come back and meet with a careers coach one-on-one -on -one to get feedback on their CV, feedback on their cover letter, to be introduced to prospective employers, to practice their interview techniques and so on. But more, more consequentially is the second is the second benefit, which is that our alumni are not just enabled, but encouraged to continue to attend the live online classes of any subject of the course from which they've graduated forever and for free. So what that means is uh, a student who's enrolled in say our most popular course, which is the MBA, only has to complete 12 subjects to graduate. But there are 39 subjects in the MBA when you include the electives. Well, after they graduate, they can continue to come back and attend whichever classes they want from any of the 39 subjects, not just the 12 they happen to complete. Actually, James, if I can follow up on your, on your first point, you've really made me think about my own life and sort of how I envisioned my 30s, if that makes sense. You identified that you're in a space in your life where you can push productivity levels high and then others, uh, someone who may say have other priorities or dependents, children might not be suited for this. And that's great for their journey. But many of our students also want to push it to the limits. They want to put in the hard work in their 20s or 30s, reach certain goals. You've said unsustainable when it, when it came down to this lifestyle. And I agree, but how can somebody know when they may need to take a break or slow down? Look, I'll preface, I'll preface this by saying to anyone listening, to be very, very careful which expert you listen to, right? So be very, very careful about articles or interviews with CEOs who, quote, unquote, can do it all. What those, what those articles really tell you is that they have a full-time nanny, they have a full-time gardener, they have a full-time personal assistant. Okay, none of us can do it all. It's physically impossible. Okay, it's physically impossible. And anyone who tells you otherwise, any motivational speaker, any motivational author, any life coach who pretends to tell you that you can do whatever you want, you can achieve anything you wish, is fundamentally being untruthful and you cannot trust them. I don't, that's not the world that we live in. It's not realistic. So that's why prioritization is important. So for me to be productive from a work perspective, and I definitely am, like I know, for, I know for a fact I'm extremely productive from a work perspective, it's because I have to sacrifice other aspects of my life that I don't value as much as other people do. So I'm, I feel happy and content sacrificing them to do the work that I do, to be productive in the work that I do. So 
that's the preface for me to answer your question, which is how do you know if you're reaching a point where you need a break? Well, step one is to make sure that you're not being fooled by people who make you believe that you can do it all because you cannot. So have a think about whether you're taking on too much unnecessarily. Uh, and the second is to listen to your body. So listen to your body when you might find yourself, for example, placing your head into your palms too frequently. Listen to your body if you happen to find yourself sleeping in in a way that you never used to. Listen to your body if suddenly you feel yourself getting aches or pains or rashes that you never previously had that could be symptomatic of stress or anxiety. So that would be my advice. You know when to pull back because your body will give you a signal that you've gone too far. And if you neglect that signal, then there's oftentimes a greater sacrifice down the track than there would have been earlier had you just prioritised more effectively. James, we, we know that international students, particularly according to surveys in Australia recently, that the number one source of anxiety among most of them would be this pressure to succeed. So you've really addressed the support that you would advise on, on helping international students to get through their studies with us. We also do it well with the international benchmarks. So particularly you mentioned the Pi Awards, but I'm wondering now the benchmarks from the Australian government of students who, particularly our postgrad students, who rate our teaching practices almost 10% higher than comparable higher education providers. So can I ask you, what teaching practice do you think KBS lecturers and our support staff do better than the other higher education providers? Yeah, maybe let me um, elaborate on that statistic in particular, because what makes it special is that it's not us describing ourselves. It's our students describing us. And it is, to my understanding, the largest type of student satisfaction survey done in any country on the planet. Like the sample size is almost 300,000 students. Almost every institute of higher education in Australia participates in it. And on the metric of teaching quality, it's true like we outrank our competitors by you know, 10% or whatever it is. But the reality is we actually rank higher than every single public university in this country. So students oftentimes will look at these, you know, these rankings, like the Financial Times rankings and so on, and think, oh, you know, I want to go study at this, at this prestigious university because it's highly ranked in the Times or whatever it is. And they go there and realise, oh, it may look okay on their resume, but their experience as a student is horrible. Hence why a majority of our students come from public universities. They've gone to public universities, experienced what teaching there is like, and thought, oh, this is, this is incongruent with the, with the brand that the um, public university conveys. So on teaching quality, we outrank every, every, every public university, but we're also in the top three business schools in this country, which I think is an astonishing uh, statistic for us. So your question is, what makes us be able to perform so well in regard to teaching quality? And I'm convinced that it is that our faculty has embraced uh, a supportive and nurturing uh, 
learning environment, like a genuinely supportive and nurturing learning environment. And we know that's true because in the exact same surveys, we also outrank every single public university on the metric of student support and have done so now for three consecutive years. So we know that when it comes to the teaching of students, we don't at all believe that our job is just to stand at the front of the classroom and talk at students. Like, that's not being supportive. That's not being nurturing. Being supportive and nurturing is being compassionate. So if we're teaching online, for example, and students have their cameras off, which can be annoying and frustrating, we understand that the latest science in relation to that is that oftentimes it's because students are feeling a sense of shame because of their surroundings, because of their housemates, because of noisy kids or whatever it might be. You know, that whatever it is that feels some sense of shame. So we have to be compassionate then in response to that. If a student is going through a personal, a personal problem, and my goodness, like, like if there's one cohort of human beings that's been affected by COVID-19 more so or as much as any other, it would have to be international students. Have to be, right? They were given pretty much zero government support throughout all of 2020. Okay, well, we have to be compassionate. And we were, hence why we launched our COVID-19 student welfare plan, which was more generous in terms of both financial and non-financial support than any other institution's uh, published support measures in this country. Hence why that COVID-19 student welfare plan of ours was also a finalist in numerous national and international awards last year. So compassionate, I think, is one aspect of being a supportive and nurturing teacher. Another is being observant. So noticing students who are quiet and not judging them for being quiet because the reasons why students are quiet are not always because they're disinterested. It's rarely because they're disinterested. It's because there's something else that's afflicting them. So as a caring teacher, surely, surely it's incumbent upon me to want to find out if the student is okay, to ask them if they're okay, to try and support them throughout whatever happen to be uh, enduring. And then the final part that I think makes us supportive and nurturing is our responsiveness. So if students email us, like we'll respond within a day or two. The fact that we have um, quantitative tutors and online tutors and, you know, 70 lecturers who make themselves available for one-on-one -on -one consultations, even if the student is not in their class. Like this is the kind of responsive, behaviour towards students in need that I think makes us stand apart from the rest. Related to nurturing learning environments and success for international students, I'm interested in your take on cultural appropriation, on teaching and academic resources. So, for example, you have tests and assessments that at times have been under fire for being culturally biased or a poor reflection of people's learning for, for the communication method. So what might an institution do to make an academic experience culturally relevant and accessible? Two things. The first is one that we've been working on, particularly over the past two years, and that's been the internationalization of the curriculum. 
it's really, really unfortunate, I think, that so many textbooks and so many theories and so many journal articles and publications and YouTube recordings are American. I really think that's a shame that so many are American, not because there's anything wrong with the United States, but just because it's not reflective of the world in which we live. It's not reflective of a school like ours where 97% of students are born in a non-Western country, okay, who were not just born in a non-Western country, but born and raised in a non-Western country. So it's really uh, disconnecting, I think, for us to be using curriculum that is obviously American, that's obviously male. Like, you know, like a couple of months ago, I was reviewing slides, admittedly, for one of our subjects. And there was this one, uh, this one slide that uh, the title was something like uh, the 10 best business books on management. Okay, all the 10 were American and all the 10 were written by white men. Okay, that's not the world that we live in. And so the internationalization of the curriculum for us and any really and any institution that, that, that embraces it is to uh, write and review curriculum through the prism of uh, a diverse world. Diverse meaning, not just in terms of ethnicity, but also in terms of uh, gender and even, even case studies. Like if I see one more case study about Google or Apple or Facebook, I, I, feel like, I feel like vomiting every time I come across one of those. They're so, they're so cliched and they're so unrealistic, you know, because what makes Apple succeed, what makes a trillion-dollar company succeed is not what's going to make a small business in Western Sydney succeed. Right? It's not. So to use case studies of unattainable organisations doing unattainable things I think is I think is inappropriate. So there's so much cultural stuff weaved into the interna internationalization of the curriculum. So that, that's, that's my first point. My second one is to be cautious that we don't assume that some cultures want to be taught a certain way. And what I mean by that is it's common to think that students in some Asian countries like China, or Vietnam or elsewhere, uh, they only want to sit in a classroom passively and obediently and quietly for the two or three hours that their lecturer is talking to them, not talking with them, talking to them, talking at them, where there's little interaction, where they would never question the teacher, right? they would never engage in a debate, they wouldn't dare talk to the person next to them. That's, that's, the, that's the perception. And I think what we've done at Catherine Business School is that we've, we've, we've proven that's actually an incorrect view. The most compelling evidence of that is our accounting discipline. So if there, if there is one discipline that's traditionally taught via the lecture model, the traditional unidirectional lecture model, it's accounting. Uh, but it wasn't until Dr. Mark Wheaton 
uh, became our academic director of accounting, that he introduced the interteaching method, uh, which we rolled out across all of our accounting subjects in 2017 and 2018, and have made refinements since then, in the two, in the two or three years since then. Uh, and the interteaching method basically is the most highly interactive teaching method possible, where the teacher does the least amount of talking. It's the students that do the majority of the talking and the class is predominantly based around the students practicing accounting and communicating accounting as opposed to just trying to memorize accounting. When software packages have, are doing the memorization for us now, right? So there's no need for students to be memorizing accounting. What they have to know is to understand the practice of accounting, but more than anything to communicate it. Hence why every single one of our accounting subjects, every single one of them has a participation mark of 30% and 40% of a student's final grade. So it's pretty much impossible to pass the subject unless you're highly interactive. Now, the majority of our students are in accounting from China, from Vietnam, and from the kind of countries where there's this stereotype that they want to be passive learners. And we've proven that that's not the case because since introducing into teaching, pass rates have increased by 20% and student satisfaction has more than doubled. James, I'm really interested in how we engage students in a culturally appropriate way. And you've addressed that question really well. Your answer makes me think about an article that I recently read in Forbes magazine by Brandon Bastide in 2020. Brandon notes that very few higher education providers actually deliver online instruction well. To summarize, he's talking about how we deliver instruction that's worthy of our brand reputation. So my question to you is, how do we at KBS deliver something that's worthy of our brand for students who study online and on campus? Let me address the online part first by explaining why we do it better and how we know we do it better. Now, we know we do it better because for years, our student satisfaction levels among those who are enrolled online is incomparably higher than those who are enrolled on campus. And we know that we also do online well because as soon as there was the COVID-19 outbreak in March last year in Australia, that resulted in the immediate lock, lockdown of the whole country, uh, which forced all, pretty much all higher education providers to just teach online. Of the, of the 170 or so providers of uh, higher education in Australia, there was just one independent provider that TEXA, the regulator, invited to co-produce and participate in a webinar series on how to teach online well. So we serve as a role model in terms of online education. So then, then that leads into the question of all well, then what makes our online, online delivery different than the rest of the sector? And this is a big deal, I think, because what we saw throughout COVID-19 was student satisfaction levels plummet across the whole sector and pretty much widespread dissatisfaction with the students' online learning experiences, but not at Kaplan Business School, not, not, not with us. So last, so last year, we shifted even higher in terms of 
the federal government's official data on overall quality of educational experience. So it's the most important metric. So the year before, 2019, uh, we were in the top 25% of providers. Last year, middle of COVID, we moved up to the top 20% of providers in this country. Again, outranking every single public university in this country. So what do we do different then with online? What we do is we make sure that what, ex what students experience online mirrors what they would have experienced if they were on campus sitting in a classroom. That's very, very important to us. So instead of doing what other institutions were doing last year, which was recycling the recordings from previous study periods or, or offering bite-sized pieces of, learn, of online learning because apparently people have short attention spans. Well, I think that's not, that's not for us. That's not our online ped pedagogical method. If a face-to-face on-campus class goes for three hours, that's what online students get. They get a three-hour class every week. If on-campus students throughout that three-hour class, which is a workshop for every single subject, so every class is a workshop, Okay, then online students during, that, during those three hours will also have a highly interactive workshop. And at Kaplan Business School, we have the 10-minute the rule, which we, which we pioneered years ago, which forbids any, any, any educator, any teacher, from talking for longer than 10 minutes without immediately pausing and facilitating some kind of cognitively stimulating activity for the students. Okay. That exact same principle applies online. So that, that's really, I think, at the heart of our online learning success. But then to extend it into the second part of your question, which is not just about online success, but just student teaching and learning experience in general, what makes us good at it, irrespective of whether it's online or uh, on campus? The answer, I believe, is that we are authentically obsessed with soliciting and acting upon student feedback. Now, many like many organizations, many institutions just pay lip service to student feedback. There's no, there's no way anyone can accuse us at Kaplan Business School of doing that. Like it's physically impossible. Since 2016, uh, since the beginning of 2016, every single trimester, uh, we'll run what we call Feedback Week, during which we saturate students with opportunities to tell us uh, how we could improve. And always, 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 within a week, we'll go back to them after we've analysed their feedback and we'll say to them, here are the five, six, seven solutions we're now going to implement directly as a result of the feedback you've given us. What that has meant is that since 2016, we have implemented dozens upon dozens of significant projects, initiatives, and solutions directly because students have requested them. So students themselves can see for real that their feedback matters, that their feedback is heard, but more than anything, that their feedback is acted upon. And as a result, that means how we teach in the classroom how we structure assessments, how we give feedback on assessments, how we structure our online learning management system that everyone has access to, what kind of resources we provide, 
what kind of courses we offer, what kind of support we, we make available. All that kind of stuff, all that kind of stuff has been born from feedback we've heard and acted upon. James, from my experience, I've been working with you now for a couple of years, and I'm particularly thinking back. A lot of lecturers are really nervous about going online. I remember doing a survey when we first started that approximately 30% of lecturers were really hesitant to go online. They were used to teaching face-to-face. And we did compassionately respond to their feedback. And now some of those lecturers who are in that 30% of hesitancy have become our best online teachers. So the point I want to make is really just a comment that we do support our students. We do care about our students. We're compassionate also to our lecturers. So I think that compassion pervades our culture from student experience to how we engage as an employer with our lecturers. I've been here for five and a half years and I cannot recall a single time that either my, my manager, the executive director, Steve Dawson, or, or, or myself, have received more uh, written compliments from faculty than we did during the transition to online learning because our, most of our teachers are also employed at other institutions, which is beautiful, you know, because they can see how we compare to others. And during that time of, unpre- during, during that, during that time of unprecedented crisis, they got to see that the other institutions at which they were employed were not in any way, in any way providing them with the kind of support that we were providing them here at Kaplan Business School. I, I think it's important to explore online study from a well-being perspective as well. And, you know, you mentioned cameras off and that's okay. And there's sometimes very good reasons for that. If someone's on campus or in the classroom, there are some ways to communicate with them and see how they're doing as well. Tell if there are things they don't understand, tell if they're under some stress, uh, normal human cues. Um, How can we support students in an online environment, if I'm a lecturer, how can I connect with my students to the same degree? Yeah, I would suggest a couple of things. The first is to analyze which classes are plagued with the problem of students having their cameras off, thereby inhibiting the connection, uh, you know, like the human connection versus the ones where that's not a problem, where that's unheard of, where where students have their cameras on and there's genuine human-to-human connection. Um, And there are a couple of of things that have come up for us. Uh, One is, uh, I mentioned earlier, our accounting discipline. Students never have their cameras off in accounting. Why is that? Well, one reason is because 30% to 40% of the final grade is based upon their participation. So unless they're present and have their cameras on and are making an effort to engage with their colleagues and their teacher, they're not going to progress well. The other, though, is that we have numerous lecturers. We're fortunate to have numerous lecturers here who have built a brand, I think, around themselves being being inspiring, being engaging, being provocative, you know, thought-provoking, being so experienced that students want to have their cameras on in order to be able to connect with them because they feel, you know, they feel turned on by them in a cognitive sense, you know. 
So there's something in that. So I think, I think there's something in both of those, in the expansion of participation marks, but also in the cultivation among lecturers of the kind of delivery, whether it's online or on campus, that would compel a student either come online and have that come online and have their, their camera on or to attend the physical classroom. There's, some, there's something in that charisma that I think we can cultivate more of in educators. I love that. I can say actually when I was studying my KBS classes, it was the lecturer personal brand that was the main thing that made me want to connect with them. Um, the curriculum's fantastic, my students, and actually really good to connect with fellow students, but it's very true. You, you connect with lecturers who, who make it, um, obviously, uh, you want to connect with. I, I have just one more from me, James, if I can. In my role, I frequently look at the Graduate Outcomes Survey. So that's, that's a survey of where alumni in Australia of, of all institutions end up six months after they finish their studies. And I often look at graduate outcomes as a measure of educational outcomes, as a measure of the quality of education provided. And KBS, actually, we rate really high, uh, upper range of things on things like graduates' performance at work, relevance to their professions, even our graduate sa salaries are on the higher range. So, as our dean, what would you say if there's one thing that would lead KBS students to those higher outcomes versus the many institutions that are on there? Uh, it's true that we perform more strongly than any of our competitors, and certainly every public university, depending on the metric that you look at. For example, starting salaries for our MBA graduates um, is one. Um, the proportion of postgraduate students who are employed upon graduation and so on. So um, we know we do graduate outcomes well. I think it's a two-way, it's one of those takes two to tango outcomes. Uh, and what I mean by that is it's first and foremost incumbent on us as the provider of higher education to make sure that we're that we're teaching students in a way that's aligned with their ultimate objective. Because the ultimate objective for most students, it's not like it is for me. You know, I do higher education as a hobby because I just, I, I enjoy it. Okay. That's a sign of privilege and a sign of what's possible for a minority of the population. The majority do not have that kind of luxury and are completing higher education for just one purpose. And that is they want to make certain that at the end of their qualification, they, they, are, they are able to get for themselves a better job or even a job in many cases, but ultimately a better job in the hope that it will create for them a better life. And when I say them, I mean, not just for them personally, but oftentimes for their communities back in their country of origin to whom they usually send back uh, money uh, to support them. That's the ultimate objective, really, of students when you're a provider of higher education to predominantly international students. So we have to make sure then that the way that we're teaching them is completely aligned with that. So how do we do that? We do that by making certain 
that we only ever design assessments that reflect the kind of work that a student would be expected to perform in the workplace. Okay, well, in the workplace, none of us are ever required to write theoretical essays. So then why would there be a theoretical essay that we said we just would not do that? It's nonsensical. In the workplace, we never have to write a literature review. So why would we impose that upon students? So for us, when it comes to assessments, it's very much about designing something in alignment with the Australian Qualifications Framework, but that requires students to perform tasks that are reflective of the work they'll eventually be doing. So, so that when they're someday going for job interviews, they can more authoritatively and more confidently assert that they've had practice at doing the job as a result of their experience as a student at Kaplan Business School. And even better, in many cases, they can present to their potential employer a portfolio containing examples of work that they've done as a result of their assessments uh, at Kaplan Business School. So there's that, you know, there's the assessment piece. There's also the curriculum itself. You know, so are the subjects that we have, are they in both nomenclature and topics reflective of the world today? If they are, great. If they're not, then they have to change. And we've been methodical in, in making those changes. But also who's doing the teaching? So if, if the people who are doing the teaching are career academics, and I'm not discounting at all the value of career academics, but to students at a school where the students have a predominant objective of employment, career academics are not as, as, are not as popular. They're not as relevant because students care less about research. But we do as academics, but students care less about research. So for us at Kaplan Business School, the first criterion is, does someone have industry experience related to the subjects that they're teaching, in addition to the necessary qualifications? So having the qualifications are enough. Having journal publications, don't care. What we care about is, are you able, as a result of your previous and preferably current work experience, able to articulate in class interesting and relevant examples of case studies that you've either experienced or that you know of as a result of your industry uh, industry background. So all of that combined is one partner's responsibilities in the two to tango equation. Okay, the, other, the other partner, or it's the, it's the student. There's only so much we can do as the educator. So the student has to make an effort. Okay, the student has to attend classes. The student has to build a relationship with their teachers. The student has to be attending the Academic Success Centre for help. The student has to be making appointments to meet with their careers coach, both while they're a student and after they graduate as an alumni member. The students have to be focused on understanding what's meant by professionalism, you know? And what that means is they can't be sending emails to to prospective employers as though they're sending them a text message. You know, they have to be interested in participating in internships or work placements. So there's effort involved, you know, in presentation and so on in order for employability outcomes to ensue. You've talked with a tone of pride and passion about how we produce graduate outcomes. We've talked about the responsibilities for learning 
by students and lecturers with an allusion to two persons dancing the tango. But ultimately, good employment outcomes for students also comes down to good leadership of Kaplan Australia, Kaplan Business School, and your own leadership as dean and professor. In the future, when people reflect on your legacy, what are your accomplishments that you would most like them to remember? Uh, I, reckon there, I reckon there are three things that I would say that I'm most proud of and would want to be remembered as having had an influential role in generating. The first would be that when I started a Kaplan Business School back in 2015, we were officially in the bottom 11% of all higher education providers in this country. So I'd like you to imagine what that would have been like. Like, like imagine the, the, the shame that many staff members felt, you know, knowing that they're working for what's publicly available, right, as one of the bottom 11% of providers in this country in terms of quality of educational experience. So for me to have played an influential role as an academic leader in taking us from being uh, in the bottom 11% uh, and increasing every single year since then to a point where we're now in the top 20% of all providers, exceeding every public university, like back in 2015, 2016, 2017, that would, like, like we weren't even thinking in those terms. So that, that, that would be my first, my first of three. The fact that, the fact that I feel like that both I and my team have had a transformative effect on our quality as measured independently by the federal government. The second is that I feel as though I have seriously innovative in terms of the way that higher education can be both taught and packaged as products. And you know, that's, that's evidenced by uh, national and global awards, which have been finalists. Uh, it's probably most evident in our MBA, uh, which I led the redesign of back in 2016 for launch in 2017 that had, at the time, about 10 points of differentiation that were unheard of in higher education in Australia. Uh, and as a result, our MBA is now uh, the third most popular in this country in terms of the number of student enrolments, which for us as an institution, as a for-profit, as a proudly for-profit institution, is very important, you know, to have such a lucrative product. And so does the MBA, but, you know, analytics courses and uh, numerous other courses have performed equally, uh, equally well. And then my third would be something that I regard as, as important if not more important than commercial success. And that is the regulator's view of us as an institution. Because if the regulator has an unfavorable view, it becomes profoundly difficult, profoundly difficult to get courses accredited, for example. It becomes profoundly more difficult to deal with spontaneous audits. But our relationship with the, with the regulator, I feel, is strong and special. And that's evidenced in a number of ways. It's evidenced by Kaplan Business School being selected to represent the independent sector on the Department of Education's working group for academic integrity. I think it's reflected in uh, my involvement as a national board director 
for our peak body are here, independent higher education Australia. It's evident in the regulator inviting Captain Business School to deliver a plenary session at the annual conference on academic integrity, to be a co-producer of the web series on online teaching of their uh, later conference when they needed an exemplar to be interviewed on quality education. The peak body chose us. So there's all this kind of stuff that I feel I have been uh, pivotal in, that I've been instrumental in, that has helped us strengthen our regulatory uh, reputation in a really important way. And that important way is that it sets us up later this year quite well to submit an application to become a self-accrediting authority. I mentioned before there are 170-something providers in this country of the non-universities, which is about 130 or so, only a dozen are self-accrediting. So if we're successful, we'll be the 13th or 14th. The fact that we're even on the verge of submitting an application is something we would not have dreamt of even three years ago, let alone five or six years ago. And so that would be my third, my third legacy that I would like to be remembered by, that I helped, I helped us be viewed by the regulator as worthy of submitting an application to become self-accrediting as a result of the reputational stuff related to governance. James, this is a great interview. I think we covered a lot and it's going to be really hard to edit down. Just really gained a lot from your perspectives on academic well-being, online learning, academic excellence. So it's been a real pleasure and thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, James. If you're feeling unwell or in need of help, reach out. Anyone in Australia can get immediate mental health support by calling the National Lifeline on 13 11 14. And Beyond Blue has great 24-7 support staff at 1300 22 46 36. Kaplan employees can contact HR or access free counselling. KBS students have access to free confidential campus counsellors, safety and support services such as Sonder. Reach out to your campus student experience team for friendly guidance on accessing these services.